This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 157. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 15 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has been sidelined for nearly two months. After shooting a vampire's thrall during the events of Things Unseen, Kate was placed on administrative leave. Though internal affairs cleared Kate of any wrongdoing, she has not yet been judged fit to return to duty, and it's starting to make her feel like she's going crazy. Kate tried to get her mind off her troubles by competing in a street-level swoop race, one of her riskiest and most beloved pastimes. But during the race, Kate suffered flashbacks of shooting the thrall, and she got into a nasty crash. Her suit's protective systems shielded her from serious injury, but her swoop was a wreck, and Kate suffered a panic attack. She was assisted by another racer, a little rat morph named Lyle Delane, who talked her through it until she could breathe again. One of the few people Kate is allowed to get close to her recently is John, an incubus priest at the Church of Hedonism. John persuaded a reluctant Kate that she needs to get out and see people, so she agreed to go out for dinner to celebrate her birthday. Also invited is their mutual friend, the vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling, whom Kate has been avoiding for reasons she cannot explain, even to herself. First, though, Kate has other business to deal with. Her swoop is still a mess, and one of her friends from Streetside, a runner named Callie Linder, has agreed to help her try to fix it. Callie knows Kate as Kathleen Kittredge, a tough-as-nails private-eye persona that Kate uses for undercover police work. On top of that, Lyle Delane contacted Kittredge yesterday to ask for help. His neighbor has gone missing, an elderly cat morph named Mrs. Roberts. Kate went to the woman's apartment and performed an augury, where she saw the woman being kidnapped off the street and forced into a van. Figuring that she still owes him for saving her life, Kate promised Lyle that she will do everything she can to find the abducted woman. But with street rats turning up dead all over the city, drained of blood and marked with apparent vampire bites, time may have already run out for Mrs. Roberts. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 15 
Kate woke up screaming. Her thoughts were a tangled jumble of horrific images, darkness and blood and death. She fought to free herself from the tangled bedsheets, kicking and thrashing like a trapped animal, until her bare skin was exposed and she lay panting and sweating, staring up at the canopy of her four-poster bed. Her chest felt like someone was sitting on it, pressing her down into the mattress, but she was alone. She closed her eyes, gripped the fitted sheet beneath her in both hands, and forced herself to focus on her breathing. In, in, in. After a long, terrifying moment when her throat seemed to have closed itself off, her body obeyed, and air rushed back into her lungs. She held it, held it, then... Out. The breath rushed out between her lips. In. Her lungs filled again. Out. She pushed out everything else, the nameless fears crowding around the edges of her mind, the nightmares still lurking in the shadows of her memory. Her world narrowed down to her own body and a single set of commands. In. Out. In. Out. She had no idea how long she lay there, but the sweat had dried against her skin when she finally felt able to sit up and look around. Outside her bedroom window, the first light of morning was filtering its way down to the dusk level of the city. She felt absurdly grateful. If it was already morning, she didn't have to go back to sleep. She didn't have to risk another bout of the nightmares. Morning, she thought. May 19th, 2000. Happy fucking birthday to me. Kate stripped off her t-shirt and panties, went to the shower, and scrubbed off the night's sweat. She needed to run, needed to get out there and move, to use her restless muscles, but the nightmares left her exhausted, and whatever was wrong with her lungs seemed to get worse when her adrenaline was running. Maybe I'm getting asthma. Gods, I hope not. She compromised with herself by doing an hour of stretches and strength exercises after her shower, which at least made her feel like she wasn't neglecting her body too much. From there, she transitioned into meditation, focusing on her mystic center and drawing up the mana to refuel her wizard abilities. She thought through some of the more complex spells she might have to use quickly, weaving them together in her mind so she could call on them later with a word or two. When she was done, she restored the Kathleen Kittredge glamour. It was starting to feel like a mandatory part of her outfit. Then got dressed in some ratty old jeans and a stained t-shirt. If she was going to be working on the swoop with Callie today, she would probably get dirty, so there was no reason to worry about fashion sense. She made some breakfast and started a pot of coffee. There was still no sign of John, so Kate went to her Worldnet terminal and started hunting down leads on the missing Mrs. Roberts. A DMV search on the van's plates showed that they had last belonged to an 87 sedan that was reported inoperable six months ago. Someone must have scavenged the plates from a junkyard and either stolen or forged a new registration tag. Kate filed a BOLO report for the van, but it was unlikely anyone would find it. If they were smart, the abductors had already changed the plates. Next, Kate called up the missing and unidentified persons database. It had been roughly 48 hours now since Mrs. Roberts had disappeared, 
so she went ahead and filed the missing person report, filling in the information Lyle had provided and her own findings from the crime scene. She also clicked over to the Unidentified Persons section of the database, in case Mrs. Roberts had already turned up. Unfortunately, the medical examiner's offices were apparently backed up on their paperwork, because the most recent entries in the database were for bodies that had been found more than two weeks ago. Out of curiosity, Kate clicked on a few of the most recent entries, scanning through the listed data on the circumstances of the body's recovery. After reading through half a dozen of them, Kate was frowning. Of the six most recent unidentified bodies, five showed signs of vampire attack. The sixth was a drowning victim pulled out of the Sea of Souls, probably a suicide. Of the five vampire victims, all had been found in sparsely populated areas of the street, places that even homeless street rats were unlikely to go. Apart from that, there seemed to be nothing to connect the cases. They varied widely in age, race, sex, and species. All were still unidentified and unclaimed. Kate sat back and nursed her cup of coffee, thinking hard. Lethal vampire attacks were relatively rare in Metamore. Malcolm had a vested interest in keeping his monsters under control, and both the Syndicate and the Lothanasi would hunt down feral vamps when they revealed themselves. Last month, in the battle under the Citadel, Kate had learned what happened to ferals when the Syndicate got them. They were kept and trained like attack dogs to be unleashed on Malcolm's enemies when the circumstances required it. But Kate and her allies had destroyed a lot of those feral vampires in the battle. Dozens, at least. Nobody knew exactly how many feral vamps there were in Metamore, but it was a safe bet that Malcolm's people had swept up most of them for use in that assault. The last month should have shown a huge decrease in the number of feral attacks, not an increase. Kate saved offline copies of the five reports and attached them in an email to Janus Starson the Lothanasi field commander. She added a brief note, explaining her thoughts on the matter. Does this match what you're seeing on the ground? She asked. How many feral vamps are you finding on your patrols? Something smells wrong about this, but I can't quite put it together. She had just sent the email and was debating what to do next when a knock came at her door. Kate closed down her terminal and went to answer it. As she had expected, it was John. He was wearing his own skin and horns today, with a dark pair of jeans, black boots, and nothing else. Kate kissed him hello and ran an admiring hand over his chest. Happy birthday to me, she purred. She put her hand over his crotch, tracing the length of his cock through his jeans. I guess I should unwrap my present later, huh? If you want to make your appointment with Callie, then yes. John said, grinning. The van's downstairs. Are you ready? Yep, just give me a second to grab my stuff. Five minutes later, they were in the garage, hefting Kate's swoop into the back of a large panel van. Her insurance company had paid for a towing company to deliver the little craft to Serenity Arms, but that was the limit of their liability. Insurance underwriters didn't look kindly on the sport of swoop racing. With the twisted wreckage safely inside, Kate and John got in the van and headed for the repair shop. Callie, Kate, and several other swoop racers split the rent on a street-side facility, 
part of a retired steel mill that had been converted to workshop space for small-time mechanics and artisans. It was a dark, cavernous place, leaky and drafty, but it gave them plenty of space to work, and the electricity was reliable enough to power the tools they needed. Best of all, there were no neighbors around who would complain about the noise. Callie was already in the shop when Kate and John arrived. She had her own swoop up on a lift and was adjusting one of the drive turbines. She wore denim coveralls and had her famously messy hair tied back under a handkerchief. She beamed at Kate as she got out of the van. Hey, kitty cat, how you feeling? Better than I was Wednesday night, Kate said. She came up and gave Callie a quick hug. Cal, this is John, my fuck toy. That surprised a laugh out of John. <laughs> okay, then, he said. He bowed to Callie. You must be Ms. Linder. I hear good things about you. Callie nodded back to him. Think I've heard of you, too, but not from Kate. You're a priest at that temple up topside, yeah? I have that honor, yes, John said. They think John's trying to convert me, Kate confided. I am trying to convert you, John said breezily, just not by preaching at you. Kate rolled her eyes and gestured at the van. Shall we? Let's, Callie said. The swoop was in bad shape. The right control vane had been severely bent in the crash, so both it and the missing left vane would have to be replaced entirely. The fiberglass nose panel was cracked in four places, and the steel frame underneath had bent and twisted on impact. The windscreen was simply gone, a thousand pieces of glass littering the racetrack. But it was when Kate and Callie opened up the left drive housing that Kate groaned in dismay. The left turbine had snapped in the collision, and three of its enchanted levitation discs were shattered. Callie sucked a breath between her teeth. Damn. Fuck, Kate agreed. John poked his head between them, frowning. Is that bad? I'm gonna need a whole new turbine, Kate said. She gestured at the broken discs. And those little bastards are expensive as hell. Any chance you can enchant them yourself? For a scooter, maybe, Kate said. For a racing swoop? Not a chance. The mages who make these things are specialists. She mopped her face with a shop towel and shook her head. This bird is going to be grounded for a while. I can ask around for a salvage turbine, Callie offered. The 7X30 was a popular model. There's a good chance somebody's got one gathering dust somewhere. Kate nodded. Thanks, Cal. She patted the side of the swoop, as if she were comforting a wounded animal. I guess there's no point fixing the rest of it until we know if we can get one. Callie put a hand on Kate's shoulder, squeezed it. Come on, let's get her up in the storage racks and then have a beer. With the swoop safely tucked away at the back of the shop, Callie went to her own swoop and pulled three cans out of the saddlebags. They sat, drank, and listened to the sounds of machinery at work in other parts of the factory. This is a bad time to be without a ride, Kate admitted. I just got a new case, and I have a feeling I'm going to be doing a lot of work street-side. Callie raised her eyebrows. Yeah? Anything I can help you with? You offering as a friend or a runner? Callie shrugged. That depends. What kind of shine are you banking? Kate smirked. Nix. This is pro bono. 
The runner stared at her. Since when does Kathleen Kittredge work for free? Since a little rat morph saved her life. Kate told Callie about Lyle's help after the crash, and his neighbor's sudden disappearance. No shit. Callie was frowning now. I've been running down some missing street rats myself. Maybe we should compare notes. They did so. Callie told Kate about the five cases she had investigated for Eloise. Kate recognized the name from Mrs. Roberts' call history, though it wasn't clear to either of them whether Roberts was a volunteer at the kitchen or if she knew Eloise from another context. Kate, in turn, told Callie about the results of her augury, and her so far fruitless attempt to track down the abductor's van. Where do you think they were taking her? John asked. I don't know, but we need to check out the morgues, Kate said. There have been a lot of bodies showing up as vampire attacks lately, and I don't believe we've got enough feral vamps left in this city to explain them all. I'd bet good money some of them are our missing people. Callie leaned forward, putting her elbows on her knees. This smells like a cover, she said darkly. One of my contacts said they lost a whole van full of people working for one of the red brothels. If it was vamps behind this, they sure as hell wouldn't be stealing their own workers. Kate nodded grimly. It's a false flag operation. The question is, who's behind it? And what are they getting out of it? John gave her a sidelong glance. Sounds like something we should discuss with our mutual friend over dinner tonight. Agreed. Kate tossed back the rest of her beer crushed the can between her hands, and tossed it into a recycling basket on the far side of the shop. She turned to Callie. You got descriptions of your missing people? I'll check them against the morgue records, see if I can find a match. Callie nodded. Good deal. Give me what you got on the abduction van. I'm looking for the one the vamps lost, anyway. May as well keep my eyes skinned for both. After trading the relevant information, Kate gave Callie a tight hug. Be careful out there, Calendar Girl. I don't want you to be the next missing person I'm trying to find. Callie squeezed her back. Same to you, Kitty Cat. You need backup, you say the word. I will. Morgan and Ava arrived early at the Emerson, an upscale bar and grill on the third level that Morgan had been fond of when she was human. She still appreciated the taste of the cuisine, but it did nothing to satisfy her vampiric hunger, so these days it hardly seemed worth the expense. For Kate's birthday, though, she would make an exception. The mater d' seated them at a table near the center of the main dining hall, next to a large gas fireplace that was open on three sides. Morgan made sure to take the seat furthest from the open flames. Even with a protective grating, accidents could happen, and vampires were much more flammable than mortals. They ordered drinks and chatted about inconsequentials until Kate arrived, with John in tow. Morgan had grown up with John. Their parents had been allies in the political arena, and Morgan had fond memories of their awkward, teenage explorations of each other's bodies. All that had ended when John's incubus heritage manifested itself. His family had excoriated him, stripped him of name, title, and inheritance, and for years they had fallen out of touch, as Morgan's family forbade her to associate with him. 
By the time they reconnected as adults, Morgan had suffered her own familial estrangement, and she didn't give a damn what her parents thought of her friends anymore. She didn't know why Kate had suddenly developed such an attachment to John. He didn't seem like her type at all. But Morgan was grateful for the excuse to see him again. And if hanging out with an incubus inspired Kate to be more sexually adventurous in other areas, well, Morgan would be waiting. She could afford to be patient. After all, she thought dryly, I'm not getting any older. She rose and hugged Kate as she and John approached the table. Happy birthday, darling. Thanks, Morgan. Morgan could detect a little resistance in Kate's embrace, something prickly and standoffish, but after a few seconds it melted away, and she relaxed into Morgan's touch. Mm, she grunted. It's good to see you. Sorry I haven't been around. No apologies necessary. She stepped back from Kate and embraced John in turn. John, love, it's been too long. You're telling me. John gave her a quick peck on the lips. Who's your friend? Ava had already stood and was bowing to Kate in greeting. Ava Sanindi, at your service. It's a pleasure to meet you, Kate. Kate bowed in return. Likewise, I've heard your name before. She paused, her eyes half-closed, as she consulted her near-perfect memory. Wait a minute. Evan Selindy, is he your twin brother? Inwardly, Morgan groaned. She had told Kate about Evan after he stole some autopsy records from Morgan for a case Kate was investigating. Armed with that information, the syndicate had ambushed Kate and her partner David, abducted the woman they were trying to protect, and tried to kill the detectives by dumping them into a radioactive nest of alien monsters. Morgan had forgotten, until just now, that she let slip Evan's real name in a conversation with Kate. It had only happened once, just after Morgan met the Androgyne, and before they had developed their current... arrangement. Kate, of course, remembered perfectly. Ava grinned, oblivious. I suppose you could say that. We're a fifth-gen Androgyne. She pointed at her temple. Shared memories, different personalities. Ah. Kate's eyes flicked over to Morgan. She arched one eyebrow in the vampire's direction. Morgan covered her embarrassment by pulling out Kate's chair for her. Well, now that we're all introduced, what say we have a look at the menu? They all sat down, and for the next hour they were happily engaged with the business of food, drink, and celebration. Morgan avoided any discussion of police work. Kate had arrived as her private eye alter ego, Kate Kittredge, and it would be a bad idea to out her as a cop to a runner like Ava. Instead, they discussed movies and swoop racing and other safe topics. At one point, John and Ava discovered a shared love of dancing, and soon they were engaged in a spirited debate about the relative merits of different classical and contemporary dancing styles. Seeing their dates were preoccupied, Kate leaned over to Morgan's ear. Bathroom. Now. They rose in unison and excused themselves. Ava and John barely seemed to notice. 
As they approached the restroom, Kate put her hand to the door and muttered a few words. A figment appeared on its surface, a bright red-and-white sign that said, Out of Order. They slipped inside, and Kate pulled out her silver casting dagger. A few more magic words, and a cushion of hardened air took shape against the inside of the door. It wouldn't stop a serious attempt to break through it, Morgan knew, but it should provide enough resistance to convince the other customers that the door was locked. Morgan quickly checked each of the stalls to be sure they were empty. Clear, she said. Kate put her dagger back in its sheath, then spread her hands. What the hell, Morgan? You're sleeping with a person who works for the syndicate? Morgan covered her face with both hands. I know, I know, I'm an idiot. Bullshit, Kate said, but she didn't sound angry when she said it. You're the smartest person I know, Morgan. You must have a reason to take that kind of risk. Morgan nodded heavily. A few reasons, in point of fact. So? Morgan considered her words carefully. First, Selindy's a runner. That means strictly contract work, for the vampires or anyone else. After that first encounter, she agreed not to take any more contracts that involved me as a target. And you believed her? Morgan, she's a social engineer. Manipulating people is her job. I know that, but she'll also abide by her contracts. She paused. Which is number two. I have a contract with her. Kate's eyebrows shot up. What kind of contract? Morgan stood up a little straighter and crossed her arms. Kate, look at me. What am I wearing? Kate's eyes scanned Morgan up and down. Morgan watched as Kate's detective eye took in her black and silver cocktail dress, the five-centimeter heels, the diamond bracelet, the teardrop earrings, and the black leather choker around Morgan's neck. Morgan had worn it before, on many occasions. But this was the first time Kate had seen it with a tiny jeweled lock hanging from the ring. Kate's eyes went wide. Oh, gods, Morgan. You let her collar you? Morgan raised her chin fractionally. I asked her to collar me. Kate looked deeply confused. But after Braddock, how could... Kate, listen to me. Morgan stepped forward and gathered her friend's hands in her own. Yes, Braddock abused me. What he did to me was a mockery of the Dom-Sub relationship. That isn't how it's supposed to work. Ava is my Dom, but only because I choose to submit to her. I'm the one in control of the relationship. All I have to do is take this off. She brushed the lock with one finger. And it's over. She smiled. But I don't want it to be over. She makes me feel... Alive, Kate whispered. Morgan closed her eyes, and she felt a warm rush of quiet contentment. Yes. After a long moment, Kate wrapped her arms around Morgan and held her. I wish I understood what makes you tick, she said softly. Morgan laid her head on Kate's shoulder. I wish you did, too. But she's good to you. 
Oh, yes. You know if I find out she's hurting you, I will kill her. Morgan laughed. Any and all pain is strictly consensual, I promise. Kate's cheeks flushed, and with the pale skin of her glamour, it looked even more noticeable than usual. We need to talk some business tonight. Some of it could concern the syndicate. I don't want them painting a target on me again. I understand. But I trust Ava. If she's being paid to investigate something, she'll tell me about it. And she doesn't work for free. Kate chewed on her bottom lip for a moment, then nodded. All right, let's play this out and see where it goes. If I'm right, we're poking around the edges of something big, and pretty soon I might be in a place to do something about it. Morgan raised her eyebrows. Oh? Are you being cleared to return to work, then? Kate smiled tightly. Here's hoping. Come on, let's get back to our dates before they run off together. John and Ava were still engaged in a lively conversation when they returned, but the topic of conversation seemed to have drifted dramatically. I prefer a plain, simple hunting knife, Ava said. Nice and sharp, single-edged, at least twenty centimeters. John nodded approvingly. You can't go wrong with the classics. But I like to use my claws. He held up one hand, and his fingernails elongated into curving black talons. I find it gives me more control, and I can sort of dance over the skin with the tips. He wiggled his fingers to demonstrate. Kate looked back and forth between them in confusion. What are you talking about? Knife play, John said absently. He was still focused on Ava. Do you prefer suspension, standing, or seated? Oh, standing, Ava said immediately. 360-degree axis is important. I usually have her arms chained overhead, though. She crossed her wrists and raised them overhead to demonstrate. John grinned, his eyes flicking sideways at Morgan. Nice. I can see where she'd like that. If possible, Kate's blush got even redder. Okay, can we stop with the kinky sex talk? There are things I'd rather not know about my friends' private lives. The birthday girl has spoken, John said to Ava. We'll have to pick this up another time. Splendid, Ava agreed. I must hear your thoughts on floggers. Kate, darling, Morgan said. You mentioned that there was a business matter you wanted to discuss. Please, Kate said, looking relieved. I've been working on a missing persons case for a client, and everything I've uncovered makes me think it's part of a larger pattern. Somebody's kidnapping street rats, and they've been doing it regularly for at least the past few weeks. Morgan sat back in surprise. Blood and ashes. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Ava leaned forward and steepled her fingers, her amethyst eyes fixed on Kate. She said nothing yet but the detective had her full attention. What do you know? Kate asked Morgan. We've had a rash of unidentified bodies turning up with their blood drained. They look like vampire attacks, but they're not. The blood is being drained from the femoral artery, and based on the evidence, the victims are tied down when it happens. Kate clenched her fist and struck the table once. I knew it couldn't be vampires. How did you know? Ava asked. Kate glanced aside at her. 
Whoever it was, their last target was a van full of immigrant workers on their way to a red brothel. The syndicate wouldn't go to the effort of smuggling those people in if they were just going to eat them. Ava conceded this with a toss of her head. Morgan and I suspect that the blood was being drained in some sort of arcane ritual. I understand you're a wizard yourself. Kate nodded. I'm an air mage, though. I'm good at auguries, but to really understand death magic, you probably need a life mage. Don't you mean a death mage? John asked. Kate shook her head. Death magic hasn't been taught as its own school for centuries. Nobody wants to be accused of being a necromancer. But biomancers study death mana for its uses in healing people. Treating cancers, some arcane diseases, things like that. Plus they learn defenses against death magic. Well, I'd appreciate any insights you could give us, Morgan said. The best life mage I know is currently out of the country. Sure, Kate said. I'd like to have a look at your recent does anyway. One of them could be the woman my client hired me to find. So, John said dryly, first a lovely dinner, then dessert, then cap off your birthday with a nice trip to the local morgue. Kate grinned at him. What can I say, John? I'm a party girl. And that's the end of chapter 15. Come back next time for chapter 16, when Kate and company visit the morgue, and Callie and Will make a frightening discovery about Silas. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. Apart from working on scripts for this podcast, I haven't gotten any writing done since July 12th. The last few weeks have been pretty stressful at the Lester Jones house. I'll spare you the details, but it looks like one of our dogs doesn't have much time left, and caring for her just takes a lot more time than it used to. I've also continued to be very busy at work, and when you add it up, there hasn't been a lot of time or energy left for writing. Looking back at the month of July, I wrote a total of 4,223 words over nine days, averaging 469 words per day. That makes it my fourth worst month since I started this podcast. Compared to June, my word count decreased by 50%, and my writing time decreased by 26%. Obviously, this past month has been a disappointment for me, but I'm trying to be kind to myself. We've had a lot going on, and while these fallow times in my writing career are frustrating, I also know that they won't last forever. August is a new month, and a new opportunity to start fresh. So that's what I'm going to do. Over on the Patreon feed, we picked up five new patrons in July. Please welcome Paul, Jenny, Jason, Tarmo, and Logan. Becoming a Patreon patron is the single best way to support me in my writing endeavors. For $3 a month, you can get access to sneak peeks, bonus art, author commentaries, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. I now have two excellent artists on my team, Ben Clifford and Carol Foote, and they've got some great new pieces in the works for you. If you want to be able to see them when they're ready, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.